0: It, baby. Welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss Steve Marriott, The Small Faces, and Humble Pie. What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing.
1: I've invited my friend Dennis here to talk about faces, small faces, Steve Marriott, Humble Pie. Paul couldn't make it. We're, we're a little late for him, and I think he's got a school night or something coming up. I don't I don't have those responsibilities right now, so uh, I can stay as long as I want and do whatever I want. The cool thing about this is there's sometimes you want to ask your friends esoteric musical questions because those kinds of bands like Humble Pie, Grand Funk Railroad, Mountain, (laughs) there were these certain bands that were like almost like a um, punchline. And it was because I came up more like metal and new wave. and
2: A lot of this stuff I got turned on to by older musicians that I hung around. I tended to hang around older musicians when I was a younger musician. You get learned a lot that way. Definitely got turned on to Humble Pie by... A man named uh, Dennis Reeves that I met when I worked for a while when I was about 18 or 19. He played in a band called the Boomers. If you happen to hear this, Dennis, I still listen to Humble Pie to this day. So that's how I got turned on to that.
1: And to me, that's like really cool. It's not like quite a statue in your park, but that's a cool thing to pass on. So there's a guy for you, you know, right. that did that. You know, I have people like that too, but a lot of it I really did on my own because I'd you know, like the Rolling Stone record guide and Rolling Stone hated those bands.
0: <laughs> Quote, Amiable maniac Steve Marriott brandished one of the most annoying voices in rock—a hectoring, thin-paper parody of black authenticity. Unquote.
2: Of course they did. And <laughs> they that's, fucking uh, hated And those that's bits. about the time I turned my back on that kind of thinking, that kind of magazine, especially at magazine. You know, when I was 16, I had a lifelong subscription. And I remember finally had enough. We said no tangents, and here we are. Uh, that's all right. I got to <laughs> And it I remember it. there was something that ticked me off so much that I called them up and told the guy, cancel my subscription. And he said, well, can I have a reason why? And, of course, being 18 or 17, yeah, because you <laughs> suck. <laughs> Real intelligence. I still do that show. Know. I still do that show.
1: That's why everybody hates me.
2: <laughs> Getting back to why I love Humble Pie, Steve Marriott, the faces. I don't know why or how. I've never really psychologically tried to figure it out, but I get to chill bumps when I listen to that music.
0: Please welcome the world's finest Humble Pie.
2: salt combined with that warmth we're talking about the guitars sound like they're singing to you and then there's this assault but at the same time there's a sexual swing or something that is in that music that the metal which kept the head banging to me throughout the w- door which is great sometimes i like some metal too and and head bang kind of stuff i used to love that stuff too but not like i like this what was he played to you? he made a compilation tape this tape became famous amongst my friends. We partied with this crazy cassette tape that Dennis Reeves made for me for years. And it had all these songs on it, one right after the other. And it was brilliant. And that's how I got into the, that that kind of thing.
1: Well, you made me that mixtape. You know, I, I really didn't know this stuff very well. And what I don't get the chill bumps because it's almost like, and I hate this, kids today will come up and they'll see the Super Bowl and see the, the Who. And they think that's the Who. And they, you uh, know, yes, you know uh, and yes. it's hard to undo that. I think the first album I ever heard or saw, I, it wasn't Smokin'. No, it was, um, what's the one with the plane?
2: That was called On to Victory, and that was when the, he got signed to A&M Records after disappearing out of the limelight for a while, and they signed him to a two-record contract, and he kind of had a hit from that album called Fool for a Pretty Face.
1: That was my first introduction, and it didn't move me at the time. Then th- the slagging from Rolling Stone—it wouldn't let I turned my mind off to it. I just didn't dig into it. When I really got interested enough to have this conversation is when I went all the way back, back to '65.
0: Steve Marriott was a co-founder of the Small Faces.
1: How in the world did these mods turn into this?
0: Over the bridge of sight. My eyes in shades of green Under dreaming spots To Ichiku Park, that's where I've been What did you do there? I got high What did you feel there? Well, I cried but why the tears? there Tell you why It's all too beautiful It's all too beautiful The so beautiful The Small Faces,
2: Ichiku Park. Which is maligned, and I don't know why. I think it's a great pop song. You know the story is that that was written because they had discovered how to flange, that w- w- wishing washing sound. It was, you know, they would literally hold your, hold something down on the tape and slow it down. Real analog trick. Hendrix loved it, right? But um, they wanted to make a song just to use that. And that's where that song came from. That was like a, it was a fluke, but it's a great song.
1: If I had to say one song that really sparked my interest, Ten Soldier, that was the one. That was the song that brought me to being into Steve Marriott. His voice is so vulnerable but powerful too, that's at the right. same time, which I love.
0: so soulful and he's got such an incredible range because he's got a lot of bass in his notes as well you know it's not just the high stuff and i remember being in the audience as well watching him strut the Gretsch uh, gretch white falcon guitar that uh, stevie used to play was almost as big as him you know because <laughs> they're quite big guitars his little legs sticking out the bottom it was funny <laughs>
1: that was what captivated me when I went back to that I started really kind of seeing the roots of how much all of these British bands had in common and then the other thing that blew my mind because I'm a, a big like fan of all kinds of psychedelic music was Ogden's Nut Gone Flake how did this fit into the whole thing
2: One of the problems with the small faces is that they should have been. They were right there. If you listen to it, some of their songs are just as brilliant as, as a kink song. Oh, yeah. In England, the, the small faces were gigantic. They were right there, right under the stones and whatnot. as far as popularity. They were managed by a man named, I can't remember, is it Dale, Dave, Arden? Don Arden. Don
1: Arden. Sharon Osborne's
2: dad. Yes, Sharon Osborne's dad who was for all intents and purposes a gangster he wrapped them up in crazy contracts they were kids literally kids 16 17 steve marriott was the out front member of that band ronnie lane wrote a lot of the songs too later with the faces kenny jones was in the band and ian mcloggin or mclagan i never knew how it's pronounced was later in the band um which they split off to become the faces after Steve Marriott pretty much just pissed them off, and they swore they'd never have a lead singer again. So um, they went
1: and got a real mild-mannered guy named Rod Stewart. Rod
2: Stewart, who the, he actually kind of talked himself into their band because they'd had such a bad experience with a lead singer, which, of course, he proceeded to put them right back through Exactly. Again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same shit, different guy. Steve Marriott was... um a very brilliant talent at a young age he was actually um it's very interesting he was a trained musical slash actor in the old english tradition he actually played the artful dodger in a in a very renowned version touring version of oliver for a yeah, while yeah
1: and davy jones did as well from the monkey now see i didn't know that yeah, see, see you now
2: go. you always have the monkey scoop <laughs> somebody has to <laughs> the thing is interesting about small faces the humble pie connection is that there was no growth in his vocal styling from The Small Faces to Humble Pie. It was the same guy. It's unreal that this 16 or 17-year-old kid could sound like Tina Turner. When Humble Pie, he just put it in a different backdrop. It was just hard rock. But if you listen to The Small Faces stuff, it's just as powerful, his vocals. See, that's the thing, too,
1: is because I think my idea of The Small Faces had always been like a a more mild-mannered version of The Kinks which was like totally off base. And I thought like a lot of the British singers that he didn't really let
2: loose until later. One of the things that is missing in the Steve Marriott story is Jimmy Page's first call to join Led Zeppelin, Keith Richards first call to replace Mick Taylor in the Rolling Stones, and then was also auditioned to replace Bon Scott in ACDC. How is this guy slagged off, as you were saying, and forgotten when that went down? Unfortunately, with Steve Marriott, he tended to be his own worst enemy a lot. Uh, I think sometimes someone that outgoing and flamboyant as he was can be their own worst enemy. The Led Zeppelin miss was not his problem at all. The story is Jimmy Page got a phone call and voice on the other end said, how would you like to try to play guitar with broken fingers? And he said, well, I wouldn't. Why are you asking me this? And he said, well, if you keep talking to Stevie Marriott, you're going to learn how. Click. So he said, all right. So then I started looking for (laughs) other singers. He blew the Stones audition by losing it and trying to sing and just being crazy. And Mick Jagger wasn't going to deal with that at all. no. No. Keith Richards and DV Merritt would have probably been dead within a couple months after joining the Stones together. I mean, I don't know if that could have lasted. Fascinating to think. You know, everything about ACDC is hidden and mysterious and locked away, and I never—they're the hardest band to ever find out anything, but apparently he just blew—and that. He and by that time, he was on the downward swing. I'm sure his voice was pretty blown out in that era. 79, 80— I don't know if they would have been able to control him as far as like doing back in black, yeah. where how uh, yeah, constructed yeah. that is. I don't think that's the too, way like, he did things. Tight for that.
1: If we go back to the history, you said he's got this exuberance, this hyperactivity, not shy, arrogant to a degree, but he can play and sing his ass off. Obviously, I can't even think of anybody who sang with that much vigor for that time. To me, they seem so meek. They sounded very British, but he didn't to me. When I actually went back and listened to that stuff, he sounded more soulful than
2: any of them. Absolutely. He was very influential on a Robert Plant. Apparently Robert Plant was out now aping a Steve Marriott when doing a whole lot of love. And you can listen to it and hear that.
0: I've played that for people,
1: their minds are blown. I mean, that was a while before that whole lot of love dropped. That was before Ogden's nut. He influenced everybody, to me, from what I can tell. It was almost like the other guys sounded like fake it till you make it, but he didn't have to fake it from day one that I've... No,
2: no. It, it was like fully formed.
1: Obviously, the biggest influence is this blues and stuff, but it was a pretty short window that it was even accessible to them.
2: That's correct, yeah. And hard to get. Let's also bring in what an amazing, mind-blowing time for that five-year span in England was for vocalists. Paul Rogers, you had Steve Winwood, you had Steve Marriott, you had uh Freddie Mercury.
1: Yeah. They're really the basis of classic rock. All of them are in
2: there. I spent literally years, I moved to two cities looking for a singer like that until I finally found one. Gene Tart. Gene.
1: (laughs) Probably my favorite 30 seconds of the beginning of a song is Afterglow. Because it has the proggy thing, it has the heavy thing, and then the soulful vocal. I love afterglow.
0: Love love is all around me, everywhere. Love has come to touch my soul. Someone who really cares No one can deny us People who once passed me by Will turn their heads around
2: There's something, a disconnect that happened over the years where those kind of vocalists, you you don't find them so much anymore.
1: We were talking about that with the Chris Cornell episode. He's one, but he developed. He did. Well, we talk about that as well. Exactly how, how he came to that.
2: I mean, a little English guy, about five feet tall, uh, that would come out of his mouth. I bet it was something to behold. I I would think, I would think.
1: What I had known until I really dug into this was Ogden's Knockdown Flake and then Heavy Metal. It really got interesting to me where that
2: transition to Humble Pie, it started off folkish. I mean, they would literally sit around on pillows. My past leaves
0: life were hard to
1: Those first couple of records to me are so cool, and it just kind of slowly amped up. And I'm wondering, you know, was that the amphetamines, the touring, the the fact that the whole
2: industry started getting heavier? Sure. I mean, okay, you had Cream, the success that Led Zeppelin had, and Deep Purple. And The Who. Yeah, they got heavy. Okay, now you're starting to play bigger places. I mean, it's pretty strange that technology played into this, the Marshall Amp. Yeah. Then he got it wrapped up with a Svengali character named D. Anthony. For instance, Jerry Shirley's book that's fantastic, um, Best Seat in the House, The Drummer for Humble Pie. Right. He had nothing but great things to say about D. Anthony, but D. Anthony pushed them into that because the heavy thing was starting to become very popular. Right. Peter Frampton explained where he came up with the four chords to start off their version of I Don't Need No Doctor, right. which is kind of famous. Yeah. He said, I put together the four chords that I noticed that when we would do sound checks, they sounded the best in these bigger halls we were starting to play. So I put all four of them together, and that's what he came up with.
1: you're listening and you don't know that much about these bands that we're talking about, Peter Frampton was brought in with Steve Marriott when he was doing Humble Pie. And that is really where Peter Frampton really got known because he was in the herd before that. People think of Peter Frampton as the pretty boy and everything, and the guy's a motherfucker as a guitar player.
2: He's a fantastic guitar player. If you listen for some of his guitar solos on that live record, especially, performance, it's a jazz influence that's not hitting you over the head. It's much like how Dwayne Allman or Dickie Betts played jazz in rock. And that's something that got lost somewhere.
1: We were both at that last Frampton show and Paul went and Paul and I both kind of went there. And then Peter Frampton just blew my mind. And it was almost like, I don't know why I was surprised, but it was just one of the best performances I've ever heard of one of these legacy artists who just did not sound like one
2: iota off their game. He plays possibly better. The only other guitar player from that era I can say that about is Jeff Beck. I have saw Peter Frampton four times, including that night, and he's always like that. He's always playing and he improvs a lot of that stuff. That's the way he keeps interested in it, I imagine.
1: It's really been a while since I've seen one of these older acts give me goosebumps, especially one I, I wasn't going there as a fanboy of. I like him. I respect the hell out of him. I, I never bought into the, the lazy thinking of, oh, he's pretty, therefore he can't play or whatever. There were times during that show, it was like I was high and I wasn't. I was just like, man. And sometimes he would hit these notes and the, the only word I can use for it is just pure. Like if this doesn't touch you, you don't, you shouldn't be here. I was just so happy that I felt that way again, because it had been a while.
2: Think how I felt the time I got to see him. uh, He played uh, one of my good friends, Audley Free, was playing second guitar. But by all indications, Audley told me he's the nicest guy in the world.
1: It restored my faith in the live performance. It was just so legit. I could totally have been 16 or 15 or back in those days and got the same vibe.
2: They were a huge fan for about two years. One year, they outgrossed Led Zeppelin, so they played to more people for one year. It was 71 or yeah, something, 71. 70. And it's because um, I think back then, you didn't have these giant screens. You didn't have all this modern stuff to keep people interested. So, if you to keep two thousand people or eight hundred, how many it was, wherever you were playing at, you had to project energy, and people would pick up on that. And if you listen to parts of performance and and that brilliant live record they put out, the uh, King Biscuit Flower Hour, yeah, yeah. which I think maybe I better. think it's better. I, yes, think it I do is, think it's better. I think it's better. <laughs> Of course, that doesn't have Peter Frampton. That's right, right. Clem Clemson. I do think they lost a lot when Peter Frampton left. He was a great singer. He also had a lot of uh, songwriting. That Shine On is a beautiful song. But he left early. He left too quick. And are there
1: any big gaps in there that, you know, we want to drop in anything or talk about anything?
2: Well, you brought yeah, up that the first couple records that are folk, and they toured the U.S. like right, that. Right. Feel More East, kind of. Yeah. Feel More West, right, kind of. Right, era. Right. ¡Suscríbete al canal! But they phased all that out. The big record that really the heavy stuff started was Rock On.
1: Right, so Frampton leaving. You know, there's all kinds of things that precipitated, but what was the net effect to the band? I mean, when they brought in Clem. Is it Clem Clemson? Clem Clemson,
2: yeah. I love those kind of rock names. Steve Stevens. You know, there's a, that's an old rock tradition. Vinnie Vincent. Vinnie Vincent. <laughs> well, now we're, now we're a little... <laughs>
1: What was the album they did right after Frampton okay. left? Was that rock? Or- so,
2: so what happened was um, that when Frampton left, like I was saying, uh, like if he, the intro, you know, their version of I Walk on Gilded Splinters, mm-hmm. the Gilded Splinters, the Dr. John song, which it sounds nothing like the Dr. John song. I have no idea where they came up with that. But um, that little intro that Peter Frampton does, that real kind of jazzy, chordal kind of thing he does at the beginning... I love that. When he left, mm. he kind of took that with him. He actually left and then they had the most success they ever had with the record he was on, the performance live record, right? Yeah, he got to he quit and then watched that record go gold which back then was a big deal.
1: I left in between mixing, Rockin' the Fillmore, and the release of it. I left because I just felt that I needed to go and do my own band, lead my own situation, and um, the album came out and went gold immediately, and
0: I thought, oh dear, I've made the biggest mistake. Uh,
2: It was too late now. Clemson was a great player uh, is a great player he's so he's still around and I thought he was a fantastic guitar player and he probably could do all that stuff Peter Frampton did the more jazzy. I think that by that time, they did like a lot of bands do. And what you almost have to do if you're going to be popular is you have to fully commit to one thing. Led Zeppelin was a band that didn't have to do that. At some point, it was obvious that when Frampton left, we're dropping all kind of acoustic kind of soft stuff. We're dropping kind of Walk on Gilders Splinters, the kind of jazz odyssey type of thing, you know. And we're going full-on into The Who kinda, just an attack. And, and which was great, I love that. But then, um, first record after performance was Smoking. And that might be their best studio records. The studio was not kind to them. I think that Steve Marriott maybe didn't have the patience for such a thing. They loved to tour and play live. It does contain their one and only hit, was 30 Days in the Hole, which is a fantastic song. And don't know why it is not in rotation on classic rock radio, why? <laughs>
1: any of their songs on classic rock radio other than, you know, Maybe I Don't Need No Doctor.
2: I don't remember ever hearing that.
1: I know I'd heard it somewhere and it wasn't in my collection. So was it Aretha Franklin did the original? or, or the It was one a Ray that?
2: Charles song.
1: And then she did it and then he did it. Right. I'd actually heard hers first and then I was I was knocked out by that one. Paul Stanley enjoyed it
2: now see now we're talking about how influential now yeah. we're going back dude. let's yeah. talk about that you bring up paul stanley steve marriott loved to have the two other guys sing just as much as he did so they used to do these kind of trading off triple vocals one person would take i used to love i love that that when everyone takes a verse right, right that just right. amps up the energy you know i heard many people over the years say well who told gene simmons he could sing I think Greg Ridley told Gene Simmons <laughs> he could sing because it sounds exactly what must have prompted. Gene Simmons always talks about the Beatles. Yeah. I'm not hearing Paul McCartney or John Lennon in a Gene Simmons voice, but I'm hearing Greg Ridley. I hate- Paul Stanley has stated the entire idea for Alive was performance. Right. And if you listen to Paul Stanley's banter, it is Steve Marriott's song intros. Because Steve Marriott was famous for, and you play play plenty of examples, of singing intros to songs. Every single thing.
1: Yes. <laughs> Every single <laughs> All word. All night. Yeah I, I think
2: I think that King Biscuit
1: I don't think he ever actually says a word I think he sings every single
2: he would preach to his crowd you know it was like it was very baptist preacher kind of I think that's what he was going for Yeah yeah but of course he was preaching to you know, a horde of of <laughs> doped out kids. You know, that was, and he would actually preach to them about stuff like that. You know, don't let them catch you and all that. You know, I love that stuff. But one thing I love about Kiss is. There's nothing that they ever said, oh, I don't want to use that. They used everything. Yeah, yeah. And so he would do Steve Marriott, except it was filtered through a guy from Queens with grease paint and seven-inch heels. But when I hear Paul Stanley nowadays and listen to it, I was like, oh, it's totally Steve Marriott. It's where he got that from.
0: Right! Toronto! You f-
2: I mean, it's great when he does it. Yeah, you know? yeah,
1: it's it's definitely part of the show.
2: Oh. Uh, uh, you know, talking about influences, the Black Crows and Chris Robinson, right, right, right. Clearly, who loves some Steve Marriott and having seen the Black Crows a couple times live, he does the Steve Marriott thing to a T. He loves that. Even some of the earlier metal guys, Kevin Dubrow has stated, it it was like I, you know, there was a couple songs I'd set up in the Quiet Riot set that it was literally you drop the needle on performance and I would just do it to a (laughs) T, you know?
1: Here's the weird one for me. Okay, so all of those really kind of make sense with the performance thing, right? But then you got guys like uh, Noel Gallagher and Damon Albarn and Paul right. Weller. Okay, that was really the first people that I had heard identified with him. And again, this is where I, I'm, you know, not very knowledgeable. And that's why I assumed he was this Ray Davies kind of character.
2: I wonder if those guys, they are more small faces they're, guys. Yeah, they're definitely more small faces. because They probably they're more, wouldn't have liked Humble Pie. Or maybe they loved it and they just didn't want to do that. I right. don't
1: know. The small faces, even the name comes from the whole mod culture. Yeah,
2: apparently they were the mod band. Right. Not the Who.
1: Exactly. It's, so to me, it's really interesting. They had a Steve Marriott tribute show. And it was loaded with, like I said, the, the more Brit pop guys you know they, they they love that small they they stuff. love that shit what happened then they kind of had this apex commercially and then you kind of get into the fan only kind of era and sometimes that's some people's favorite era
2: okay so you're asking what happened next
1: well there's a whole bunch of records in there and like i said as as a fan sometimes that's your favorite shit how about you? Well, there's street rats and
2: Okay, now see you may, may this may be a band not where that doesn't go on. Okay. Um, what happened was these guys were so big, it was, it was Learjets, they all had a timeshare of an island. This is, I mean, it's it's crazy how much money they made. Probably the amount of money we make right now, or that like you make right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You could do some of that shit. They had this massive success. You know, you have to keep it going. You're only as good as your last record, right? Isn't that what they say? Their next record was going to be the biggie. It was what, 72, 73, 72 maybe. So what was big at that time? Uh, Exile on Main Street. Double albums started becoming. So Steve Marriott probably shouldn't have made a double record. But he was going to make his double record. He produced it himself, and they mixed it and recorded it in his his own home studio. Mistake. It was called Eat It. It comes with this tremendous booklet. 20 you know 10 page booklet with all these bizarre drawings of the band and um immaculate packaging the record company put a lot of money into it it was obviously going to be their big deal unfortunately they didn't deliver the songs there were no hits on it it meandered all over the place it was not well produced it's very muddy and that was it they toured under that and that king biscuit is that I believe the Eat It tour, so they still had their live act they could fall back on, and the record I don't think sold poorly. It just wasn't the hit, you know. How does it stack up to you, especially now? It meanders and is body sounding. So
1: yeah, because see, <laughs> I think a lot of records later on they gained in stature, even having those kind of faults.
2: Okay, Eat It contains you know how much of this you want to drop in. Eat It contains the brilliant black coffee. <laughs>
0: Is my
1: Drugstore Cowboy? That's pretty cool. That's not bad. The Honky Tonk Woman, it was almost like... Okay, the Honky Tonk <laughs> Woman, yes.
2: You do get his awesome intro <laughs> to the tribute to the Rolling Stones, you know. <laughs> I got to put that in here. We
0: want pay!
2: So now we move on to Thunderbox. Um, It was their last gasp. It was do or die. Steve Marriott was running out of steam. I think the the, the mental toll of the constant touring, which Steve Marriott never flagged in those days. Our bread is buttered by our live show, and we're never going to disappoint. Try imagining them, him doing that every single night for, what, 150 nights? Well, sometimes I can't <laughs> listen to the record because it exhausts me listening to it. It exhausts it is. you. <laughs> exactly. It does me. Yeah, yeah. it'll wear you out. Because <laughs> that was how it was back then. You better have a big hit or it's over. They put everything into the wonderful I Can't Stand the Rain. Mm-hmm. I think John Lennon described that as the perfect single.
0: I can't stand the rain On my window It's bringing back sweet memories
1: then there was like grooving with jesus
2: okay there's tons of okay you like filler you always said you like i like when they had filler well you have a lot there's of likes filler. on that record yeah. it was the end i can't stand the rain did not hit thunderbox flopped they were con- they had to do another tour for the record i guess the contracts or something they weren't into it and then he shut it down Street Rats is a piece together thing the record company put out. I know this is the kind of stuff you love. That record has um, jam sessions from uh, Steve Marriott's studio that don't even have Humble Pie. It's not even Humble Pie. Like the song Street Rats, which is cool. I love that song. You can drop that in there. I love that talking thing he does in that song. I don't think Humble Pie is even on that song. That's just him and some other guys. That's what happened. Uh, we started at the end, at the beginning, um, yeah. when um, several years go by, and I think 79, he brokered a new deal with the record company. I put out two decent records. Um, the, On to Victory, the album cover's better, yeah. but it has really Fool for a Pretty Face is the, is the only song, which is great. It fits in with their classic stuff. Is Go for the Throat the one after that? Go for the Throat is the one with the worst album cover I think I've ever seen. It looks like a great white album cover. Would they even do that? Like, I can't even look at that.
1: Imagine me coming in in that era. Oh, that's right, really yeah, what I'm fair. like. That's
0: fair. I'm not
2: fair. interested in this for... It took me a long time. Well, okay, this era, that era of what happened to Steve Marriott after Humble Pie, he put out a solo record. Right, which I've never heard. When I talk about a band wants to get big, they commit to something. Certainly ACDC committed to something. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the Ramones, Ramones <laughs> committed to something. ZZ Top committed to something. So he got pigeonholed. Now, Steve Marriott wanted... So bad to actually do V like he'd like those old stuff. Well, you know, the record company's not gonna let That was little. a bad time for that. Too. Yeah, it was a bad time, and he couldn't convince people that that's what he wanted to do. So, Go for the Throat was supposed to be a raw, old school sounding soul record, but they kept making him go back in and they reproduced it, and, and it turned out all right. Teenage Anxiety is such a wonderful song. I mean, it's soulful. He wrote that about John Lennon getting shot. Right. He didn't live up to his potential. Like, he could have done all kinds of stuff like that, I think. He had it in him to do it, but I don't know what happened. Was it the lack of focus? Maybe he couldn't be produced. I don't think my man could be produced.
1: Certainly not in a studio. I mean, I mean that was the thing, you know, even their best stuff. Sometimes I loved it when he would, like, peg out. You yeah. would hear him.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> He'd peg out the soundboard. Yes, yes. <laughs> interesting we bring up to me how much he sounded like tina turner who also did that and i i was reading about the uh, recording of um What's love got to do with it? First of all, she hated the song. They played her demo, and she's like, what is this? When they tried to get her to sing it, like the demo they had of it, she immediately goes into her thing, pegging out. And they had to actually say, you know, Mrs. Turner, Miss Turner, can you not sing it like that? We're looking for something, and she just didn't understand that. So maybe that was a generational thing? That she was doing her Tina Turner thing all across that song, and they are like, no, this is not what this is about. Oh, you mean that she didn't have the nuance or yeah, there was no new. She, there one. was just going, for going. It. For oh, it. I see. But I think there was a whole lot more there. Has he ever really thought of the lyric writer? I think he could have sat down and wrote great songs. I just think he, someone wrote those small faces right, songs. Right, right. I just don't think that was his thing. I don't think he could focus. Oh, what about we never talked about? when he put the small, small faces back together in 1978 yeah let's do that it's two records and they, they didn't hit and they weren't you know I don't know if I've listened to maybe once or twice I'm sure there's something on there Ronnie uh, on Ronnie Lane teams? was not involved in those uh, he walked out after like two weeks of rehearsals or whatever uh, he was sick right he, and, and they, they, they didn't know he they didn't was know sick what it was, it was then but I have to put in that I think you would probably agree rough mix is one of the greatest unheralded records ever oh yeah we definitely there's talk not, about not Ronnie, a note right? on that record that I don't like I've listened to it a million times and no one even knows it
0: exists Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
2: a friend of mine he has family in England and he went over there about 86 87 and he came back with pictures and he said mean, you're not gonna believe the story. I'm in visiting my relatives in London and I opened up the London newspaper or whatever and in one of these little pubs, it says Stevie Marriott, guitarist. That's all it says. So he found his way to this pub. He got there and setting up. It is one and only Steve Marriott. He proceeded to whip through soul covers, humble pie stuff, right in this little tiny club. And man, he said he was just getting it. And at the end of it, he goes up to Steve Marriott and he said, "Man, I'm I'm telling him how much we love him, and I'm telling him about the tape." And you know, and he said he's the nicest guy in the world, and was just as happy playing at that pub as apparently he was playing giant arenas. You know, he didn't care. There's like this grainy not well lit picture he took and gave to me and blew it up and i have it framed and um, you can tell it's steve marriott and you know that's a great place to end that is the final story i have see that's
1: what i want to do like whenever i do have somebody over i want to hit that thing for them because obviously you just tell looking at you just way the fuck into it after all these years
0: this has been produced by donnie shattuck
2: we were on like an old Johnny Cart, you know, D- Dick Cavett or something, you know, <laughs> kind of like, yeah, yeah, tell us how it is, you know. That was fun. That didn't go near as crazy as I thought it would. No,
1: man, I like doing it. It's, to me, it's just the same shit we always do. We just structure it a little bit, you know. So this is how you guys do that? This is how we do it.